we were still trying to figure out some of our you know, projects for the year and I'm starting on a new book and so there's just a lot going on. But Oh, that's exciting. Nice nice to be home for a while. Did you just get back from assignments somewhere? Was in, uh, so I've been helping with uh, the, the Gaza coverage a little. So I was in the region in November and that's the last time I've been out of country. So uh, that was an interesting time to be in the Middle East. But uh, if anything, it's gotten worse since then. So it's, it's just crazy time. Yeah, you were there in November as all this was going down. Yeah, so it was. Uh, I didn't. I was on the mostly on the the Jordanian side, so I didn't go into Israel itself. Had we were kind of teaming it up. I had uh, friends who were colleagues who were in, in Israel. We were sort of covering the Arab point of view and, and getting around, talking to people on that side, talking to everything from refugees to you know to, to uh, Arab leaders and trying to get a sense of where, what their temperature was. What's so, the um, feeling on the ground over there? Um, so good. So are we starting? Should we? Yeah, um, yeah, we can go right now. Okay. So you, no introduction, just, we'll just roll, right? Yeah. I like to do the rolling start just to kind of keep a natural okay. flow. So, so the feeling is, is it's a bit mixed. Um, I think there's some relief that it hasn't been worse in the sense that there was some real fear that, that other things are going to blow up. And, and we came close several times, particularly on the North with Hezbollah, you know, with has much bigger capabilities, many more rockets, could put uh, you know Israelis in bunkers for for weeks or months if that really took off, and even in in the West Bank, there's there's been a lot of uh, activity, a lot of arrests, a lot of people killed, but it hasn't been the meltdown that people were afraid was going to happen, and so there's been this sense of kind of in the region uh, horror looking at what's going on and and just how how terrible it's been and what the humanitarian crisis has been like. Some relief that has it gotten worse. And also some, uh, to be honest, there's, there's this unusual, in my experience, optimism in the sense that people are actually looking forward to something happening that could be good, that could come out of all this. And if there's some way to resolve the bigger conflicts because of this crisis, then that, that could be a good thing all around. And I'm, I was surprised the degree to which I heard um, that some of the Arab neighbors are, are still ready to do that. They're um, they're dealing with a lot of unhappiness at home. A lot of people in their in these countries are really upset about what's happening in, in Gaza, but they're steadfastly looking ahead and trying to figure out what happens next. And if there's some some way to to to, to go to a two state solution or have something something that feels like more of a you know a, a progress in in a place where there has been very little progress for decades, you know maybe it'll be a good thing. And that that takes some squinting and you know, looking in the future and you know, being a little bit of a cockeyed optimist, I guess, but there's a little bit of that there. And I was kind of surprised to see it. Does it still feel like that optimism is there now, a few months later? It's, it is in the sense that there's determination that this opportunity is not going to pass. And some of the big guys in the region, the big guys being the Saudis and the Emiratis and others with lots of money, um, they really want to get something done. And, they, and it's always been the history of the region that there is a there's an explosive period of, of violence and chaos, followed by some progress in trying to resolve things. Maybe you know the the e Egyptian-Israeli uh, you know peace agreement following the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Um, there's chances for steps forward, and they're I almost get the sense that they're refusing to be distracted right now because that their eye is on that prize, and it could be you know really good news for the Israelis if that means normalization of relationships between the Saudi Saudi government and Israel, which has never happened. Um, 
it could be good news for even for, for, for Gazans and Palestinians if there's a way that Arabs can help broker some kind of peace, some kind of stable government where people can have normal lives and, and, and aspire to a future. Because that hasn't been normal in Gaza for, for decades. People have been living in what's essentially a cage. Um, and that's not a tenable situation in the long term. If, it, if that can be solved in some way that makes people at least feel like progress is being made and there's some hope for the future, then that's, you know, that's worth doing. And, and I see these Arab leaders still focused on that and still thinking that maybe, maybe we can do this. And there's lots of details to be worked out and, and it looks difficult on the Israeli side. Uh, the, the current government just doesn't seem to be interested in, in a two-state two solution for starters. But but there is, you know, even in this government, the U.S. government, there's a sense that, you know, maybe maybe we can push and get something good to happen when this is all over, when the shooting stops. Is there a fear among Arab leadership right now that Israel might take it too far with the bombings as the civilian casualties rise? Or are they hopeful that through this pursuit of Hamas, which is Israel's intended target, that there might actually be progress made on that front and stability will ensue because of that? Yeah. I think there's, they all believe that Israel's gone too far already. There's some hopeful signs that the Israelis may be pulling back and going to a less kinetic phase, a little, little bit more focused on um, high value targets and not this, this, the, the bombing and the destruction that we've seen. Uh, I think the, things, the thing that worries people still is that there'll be some kind of incident in the north, something on the Lebanese border. Uh, where you know many people are killed on one side or the other, and then we start walking down a you know an escalating pathway toward a, toward a, a new confrontation, and that's everybody's tiptoeing around that. People are also kind of tiptoeing around the situation in, in the Red Sea with the the Houthis, this this rebel group that keeps uh, trying to shoot at, at ships uh, you know, of all kinds passing through the Red Sea. So far, they haven't really done any damage, um, you know, substantial damage anyway. But there's always a chance. Just one lucky or unlucky shot um, that, that kills people, that uh, destroys a ship and suddenly sets the region on fire again. Everybody's kind of walking on eggshells, hoping that one of these little secondary crises around the region doesn't suddenly erupt into something much bigger and much, much more dangerous. Do you anticipate the current dynamic in the Red Sea being that catalyst? It has that potential. And I, I've spent some time looking at this and I've you know, been to Yemen before. I, I know it's... Uh, <laughs> It's a it's a place. It's hard for most Americans to even imagine. It's uh, it's you know these old medieval cities. Uh, people living in extreme poverty. This wild, barren wastelands in the interior. It's uh, it's it's just kind of a crazy place to to be at. And here you have this really bizarre group. This these these Houthis. It's kind of cult like. They're aligned with the Iranians, but they have a slightly different faith, and they're. Um, I mean, they, they don't seem like they're anyone we should take that seriously. And yet they have some pretty significant military capabilities and a lot of ability to make mischief with anti-ship missiles, particularly, which they've got a lot of, and they're pretty good at using them and other kinds of drones and, you know, air, you know, ground land to land missiles that, that could, could strike a target and, and make things much more, uh, you know, much more unstable in the region. It hasn't happened yet. You've seen just in the last few weeks uh, when we're making this taping, um, you know, multiple strikes against these Houthis trying to kind of warn them, you know, you know, stand back, you know, stop going down this road. And we have to hope that works. But it's definitely one of one of several kind of powder kegs that's out there at the moment that 
just an unlucky break could set things off in a, in a sort of dangerous escalatory way. Some of the commentary that I've heard around the bombings is that it's almost just a show of po- show of force, but nothing more than that. I believe even Biden said he was quoted on some video by a reporter that is the bombing working? No, but is it going to continue? Yes. Yeah. And I've heard that kind of match with the idea that, you know, Saudi Arabia has been bombing Yemen for a long time, and yet the Houthis are still there and still yeah. strong enough to cause this level of chaos. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good observation because, yeah, you could see, I think a lot of people who don't understand the region that well were surprised that we didn't bomb sooner because, you know, what do, what do these guys mean? They're, they're going to start shooting at, at just commercial ships and tankers in commercial waterways. We just ought to swat them down and, you know, do something about it. But, you know, it's funny, one of the ones, one of the countries that have been begging us not to do that are the Saudis who used to, used to be at war with the Houthis because they don't want this thing erupting again. And, you know, they had essentially put a lid on a conflict that had been going on for a decade. Things had started to settle down. The last thing they want is to have a whole new, uh, you know, war kind of breaking out on their, on their back door. And, and the other point with the Houthis is they, in a weird way, they welcome this. They, they, they love kind of, you know, beating their chest and telling their people that, oh, we're fighting a superpower and, and look how tough we are. And, and you can't really deter them because as one analyst said to me not too long ago, you can't bomb them to the Stone Ages. They're already in the Stone Ages. So it's a, it's a, it's a group that doesn't get deterred very easily in the traditional ways. There aren't many levers to make them change their behavior. So the, the strategy so far is just, you know, hit them, show them that we have the capabilities. We can, we can see where their, their missile storage sites and launch sites are, and we can come after you if you keep down, going down this path. But everybody's being very careful, and I think maybe even the Houthis, trying not to, to make it, trying not to be so destructive or, or take so many lives that everybody gets really, you know, uh, spun up and does something, you know, moves it on to the next level. It's all a bit controlled. And if you can keep that balance for, you know, for a while, I guess that's a good thing. But um, hopefully the, the Houthis will be dissuaded from being as provocative as they've been, you know, in the last few months. Do you believe them when they say that their stated goal in all of this is to enact a ceasefire between Israel and Palestine? Or do you think that this is just them taking advantage of the chaos? I think there's a lot of the latter. I mean, it is true that, so the Houthis have this, this saying, and I'm going to get it wrong, but they have like a, this traditional chant and it's deaf to America, deaf to Israel, curse on the Jews, and one or two others that they're essentially, you know, their, their, their diatribe. And so they, you know, it's been part of their, their mantra that they, that they, they favor the, you know, the liberation of Palestine, the destruction of the state of Israel. So this is an opportunity to, 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 to do something in that vein. But I do think right now they're just flexing their muscles and, and trying to trying to look big and bad and tough to their to their own people and to to their neighbors. And it's working in some ways. Yeah, and the, the Iranians to- are, are 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 happy about it too because the Iran kind of is is the puppet master in the region. They supply all these groups and they have proxies, these militias that are allied to them, and not just in Yemen but in Iraq and in Syria and in Lebanon. So Israel is essentially surrounded by these resistance uh, militias of all kinds. There's a really interesting mix of, of, of groups. And, um, and it, it's, it, it has an opportunity now to essentially put its finger in the, in the eyes of, of the Western powers, particularly the United States, but from a distance. We're having somebody else do the damage, you know, those missiles didn't come to us, we didn't tell them to do it. It's, 
you know, it's all kind of on them. Uh, while all along, like the, the Iranians have trained and equipped and armed and funded these groups for decades now. So they're, they're very much in the driver's seat when it comes to these militias. That's the big argument with Hamas too, right? Is that Iran's been funding them, been training them and kind of pulling the strings behind the scene. Yeah. And Hamas is a bit of a strange creature because it's not like many of the other groups. It's not a Shiite group. So it, it's Sunni and that Sunnis and Shiites typically don't get along that well. There was a period just, just in the, the last decade when the Iranians and, the, and Hamas are really on the outs. They didn't, didn't really speak to each other because of the civil war in Syria. They were on opposite sides of that conflict. So they're not best buddies. And I think in the case of Hamas, there is some independence there and they, they do things without waiting for instructions from the Iranians. Um, there's a consensus that they didn't tell the Iranians about October 7. They didn't let anyone know that they were going to kind of go after the Israelis in such a, um, in such a big way. And the Iranians are a bit surprised by that. So it's, they're not, not always in lockstep, but it's absolutely the case that Hamas today is one of these proxy groups. They take a lot of money from the Iranians. The Iranians are, are encouraging them and, um, and, and want to see them survive as the leaders of, of the Palestinians in Gaza. It's, it's a really complicated situation, but they're, they're definitely uh, you know, in bed together. One of the things that this Houthi combat has kind of revealed to me is the fiscal aspect of all of this where you have these drones that they're launching, they're like $2,000. And we're using hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of missiles to counteract those. Yeah. Which is yeah, shocking. There's a real kind of um, disparity in, in, in the, the expenditure of these things. Because you're right, drones these days are fairly inexpensive weapons. And everybody has them. And I'm talking about you know everybody, all these little militia groups that you've never heard of and I'd never heard of. And they're, they're, they, you know, they have a, maybe a couple thousand um, members, but they have drones and they have, you know, weaponized drones, their ability to, to, to attack targets, you know, standoff attacks. Um, and, and they're not expensive. A lot of them you can buy you know, online, some of the cheaper ones, surveillance drones. Others are, you know, require, you know, a bit more expenditure, but it's, you, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, to, to spend more than a few thousand dollars on one of these things. On the other side, yeah, anti anti drone batteries, uh, the surveillance systems behind them, you know, that's serious money. And at the same situation in Ukraine with the Russians, it's it's just, um, you know, stopping those missiles from coming in is a lot more expensive and a lot more difficult than than lobbing those missiles and drones out to start with, particularly the drones because they have so many of them. And that was, uh, like you said, another realization in the Ukraine war is that, you know, tanks are almost obsolete in this way because you could just blow them up with significantly less money involved in that. Yeah. And I can't tell you the number of videos I've seen of Russians being chased by Ukrainian drones only to be blown up a few seconds later, which is insane to see this video footage coming out. Yeah, I think you look at some, some of the same war porn that I do, and it's, it's mesmerizing because it's, you know, we've, we've had video wars before, I guess, but this is something else. I mean, this is real on, on the personal level with, you're right, like a drone coming down the road after like a, a you know, armored uh, a troop carrier or, or, or a bunch of guys running around in a trench. And it's, it's that intimate of level of, co of combat. But uh, the, the, the Ukrainians and the Russians both now have, you know, massive numbers of these systems. And they're using them to such, a, to such a, an effective extent that it's part of the reason that the battlefield is frozen because neither side can get a real tactical advantage because the drones are up there watching every move. 
And as, as soon as you get a, a mass of troops or, or vehicles together, then here comes the, you know, the high Mars or, or there's, a, there's an attack of some kind. Uh, it's completely changed the, you know, the, the, the battle. And I could tell you that folks over on, in our country at the Pentagon are taking furious notes of this because this is very much the future of conflicts as far as they're concerned. And, and maybe the future, the future of uh, non-state uh, attacks too. You can imagine groups like, you know, Al Qaeda or even some of these groups like Hamas thinking, you know, wow, these drones are pretty effective. Where do we get ours? And again, with the financial discrepancy, how do you combat a force that can produce these drones at scale for pretty cheap? Yeah. And we're producing, you know, $250,000 Patriot missiles to counteract those. Yeah. That doesn't that last doesn't, long. Yeah. And, and, um, and there's some really, some, some countries have gotten really good at manufacturing the drones, including China. They've got you know, fleets of these things that are up for sale. So it's, it's really, again, it's not very hard to get them and it's not a lot of money. Do you anticipate Hezbollah entering this if the conflict draws out long enough? I'm, I have become, and I'm always have to be careful because every time I say something, I feel like I, you know, I step in something and, and the opposite happens the next day. But I, we really worried about Hezbollah early on. And then, you know, messages from the, from the leader, this guy Nasrallah, who's the, who's the commander of, of Hezbollah and southern Lebanon, co- consistently making the point that this isn't our war. You know, we're going to be on the side of the Hamas and we'll support them where we can. But most of, the, most of the attacks have been symbolic in the sense that they haven't really gone after serious targets. They've, they've uh, gone after, you know, uh, you know, watchtowers and, and you know, border stations. And uh, there have been a handful of deaths, not many. I think on the Hezbollah side, there's been more, maybe a few hundred, but it's still in, in fairly low numbers. And I feel like that if they were looking for, for a fight, they would have found a way to get into it already. But I do think that Hezbollah feels it's got way too much to lose. The Israelis have a mixed view about this. I mean, I think some of the leaders feel like, well, you know, we're, we're in the middle of this now. Let's just have it out. Let's just settle, settle everything. But I don't think that, that Hezbollah wants it. I don't think the Iranians want it either because the, I think the last thing they want is to see their most important and strongest militia ally, you know, being, you know, degraded or, or set back militarily. And that would certainly happen in a, in a war. There'd be huge damage on both sides, but there's no question that lots of southern Lebanon would be a ruin if, if there was a, another real conflict. So knock on wood, if I could find some real wood around here, I'm hoping, hoping it doesn't happen. And I think we can be confident that it, it's probably not going to happen unless something just crazy, there's some the, kind of the accidents that we talked about, something that is just so provocative that the, the two sides just can't, can't stay apart. Yeah, I've heard some desire from the Israelis to almost do a preemptive strike to try to take out Hezbollah so that should something like that happen or should it escalate in some way, they're not as capable as they would be. Yeah. And there, there are some very, very hawkish people on the Israeli side. And we've, we've talked to them and met with them, you know, not just during this conflict, but for years. And there, there's been this argument that, look, Hezbollah is just getting stronger. You know, every year they, they get more rockets and missiles or something like 150,000 of them now. Some of them are you know, fairly primitive. Others have guidance systems, but they just get keep getting more of them. And there's also this problem. There's supposed to be this buffer zone between Israel and, and southern Lebanon, and it's uh, you know Hezbollah is you know flaunts that 
agreement all the time and they have people prepositioned in those areas that makes it unsafe for Israelis living in the north. That if there's um, a, a terror attack like October 7, you could see waves of people coming across the border and getting to Israelis pretty easily. So there are people in the Israeli side who are, would kind of like to see this escalate, frankly. But I think that it's not that's not the consensus view and 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 people who are security professionals understand that this would be really, really dark times for Israel if there was a full out exchange because even if they preemptively hit some of those those um, you know those rocket launching sites, there are so many of them. Um, and it's not just the possibility of hitting villages on, in northern Israel, but you could hit some pretty serious targets, maybe even you know nuclear reactors and things like that. Um, and that could be a complete game changer for Israel, the region. So I'm I'm hoping that cooler head, cooler heads prevail on that one because it would just not be, it would not be a cakewalk for Israel, and it, it might spiral out of control in ways that nobody could anticipate right now. Yeah, it almost feels like everyone is just watching and waiting. That the bombing is continuing, and everyone's kind of just holding their breath, waiting to see what happens, hoping nobody makes an escalatory move that pushes us too far where now it's all out. And I think people were a little afraid of that path being implemented when we started bombing for, for the U S started bombing, you know, yeah. but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's pushed anybody to the edge yet. Yeah. And I could tell you that in the, in the U S administration, you know, Pentagon folks who are doing this every day, they're, they're pushing the Israelis to wrap it up. You know, just, Get this over with, you know. Get get the troops out, or pull back to to some perimeter, or someplace where you have where it's less provocative and there's less of a chance for something to go wrong. Because that's the fear that the longer this goes on, and the, and the more other parts of the region get dragged into it, like every day there's a chance that something could go really badly wrong. So I, th I think the hope is that you know the, the talk was just just very recently that by the end of January, you know, the serious fighting would be over. And I, I think we're going to end up spilling over that by a bit, but it's there's still this pressure on Israel to just get it done and get out. And whatever you you think you have to do, just get it done and get out because this is this can't be sustained in the long term. Something bad's going to happen eventually. Does Israel seem to want to sustain it past that deadline? Because it seems like there's some pushback between you know Biden and Netanyahu that he's he wants to implement his plan how he see fits. And yeah. the U.S. wants it to be wrapped up, wants there to be a deadline. Yeah, and and Netanyahu keeps keeping uh, has this maximalist position that we're going to destroy Hamas, and that you know that there will be no Hamas left when we're finished, and that may not be a uh, you know doable. You might be able to degrade them, and, and they probably already have uh, or will soon degrade Hamas to the to the degree that they wouldn't be able to, to repeat in October 7 for a very long time, if ever. But this sense that you're going to destroy, you know, the movement, that probably is just wishful thinking because it's, it's an idea as much as a group. The idea persists. Uh, there's this tendency in conflicts when you, when you kill a lot of people and you leave a lot of orphans, those young kids are, are the radicals who become sort of the leaders of the, of the next phase of the movement. So you're not going to completely eliminate it. And the more that the more killing and the more destruction that takes place, as, as we've discovered in, in other parts of the world ourselves, you you do create more hatred and more radicalism and it tends to come back and get you at some point. That's what I don't really understand looking at this from an outside observer is it 
in this indiscriminate bombing, it seems like you're just creating more potential terrorists that these people, especially as you watch some of these videos of these people getting shot as they are surrendering. How does that not breed more hatred and more determination? I watched a video the other day and I don't know if this is true because some of, some of the footage is definitely doctored and all over the place, but it was a group of men, four or five men, and they were going back. They had been evacuated. were going back to try to get some family members, had a white flag and were shot right after being interviewed by a reporter. And you see that and you think, oh, that's not good. Yeah, I was, I saw that too. And that's really, really hurtful from, you know, from Israel's point of view, because you're right. I mean, it's not just the families and, and the sort of the children, the sons and daughters that may see that video, but it's, it's it's a kid sitting in a in a you know a, you know a coffee house, you know in Europe uh, maybe of of Arab descent or in Pakistan or someplace else. People are are seeing things like that and they're seething about it and they're angry about Israel, but they're angry about you know Western countries that support Israel. These are you know these are the kinds of triggers that send people into into dangerous directions. Sometimes acting out on the on their own or joining organizations that are committed to fighting back. And I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and it's, it's you see these cycles, and you you you, you see, you know, the, the 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 aftermath of of the U.S. invasion in Iraq, and and this whole generation of angry young men that it spawned, and many of them joining up with what was then Al Qaeda in Iraq, and then what that became ISIS, and then ISIS gets destroyed, but you've got you know thousands of these kind of displaced people. You know, children of these fighters living in refugee camps in, in in Syria with no education to speak of, with no hope for the future, and you could just see that cycle starting again. And it's, you know, it, it makes us feel good to kind of punish the bad guys, um, but it but it but it does have consequences. And I remember, you know, when the when we first started using drones, the United States did mostly CIA in the beginning, and then then the then DoD gets into it as well. But that was kind of a the, what was great about about drones as a as an instrument of war to to our side was that you can control the collateral damage, you can be extremely precise in their targeting. And so instead of dropping a two thousand pound bomb and maybe wiping out a couple of families, if you can pinpoint it so that you're you're hitting one car, or as I've covered, extraordinary um, hits where they've targeted a guy on a rooftop, or just like they did for Zawahiri in, in, in Kabul of, uh, a few months ago, or a couple of years ago now. It's if you can do that, they feel like we've we've accomplished our mission and we've min- minimized the collateral damage, minimized sort of the inflammatory effects of the strike. It's it, it it's not a hundred percent because you, you still. It, you, you still create that outrage, but there is a, a real desperation in this country to try to to limit the killing as as much as as possible. And I, it, it sounds like propaganda, but I've talked to the guys who've been sitting at the controls, and they talk about the the you know how they have to kind of recite back to their you know to their air traffic controller. Are you seeing other people around? Are is anybody coming and going? Are you sure these are the only people in the building? And they 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 can look at a target sometimes for days until they're absolutely convinced that just the target they're going after, and nobody else. And that helps them at least makes them think that maybe they're containing the damage. But again, it's it's never it's never a hundred percent. And even when they're almost positive, we can still have that collateral damage. That was the big thing under Obama, right? Was 
most of these drone strikes did have civilian impact. Yeah. And in the one case under Obama, there was a, a, a targeted killing. I think it was in Yemen, unless it went to a, one of the neighboring countries. But it was an American citizen, a guy named Al-Waki, who was a, a, a sort of firebrand uh, preacher who was who was we know was behind a couple of terrorist attacks, including the famous underwear bombing. A guy had a um, you know some explosives in his underwear and was flying to Detroit on Christmas Day, and he tried to ignite the bomb, and and then ends up kind of burning himself instead. So it was it was kind of a real knucklehead case. But you know the the attempt to kill that that uh, that uh, U.S. citizen ends up killing several members of his family, including a young kid. Um, it's it's you know and and the guys that are that are on the joysticks and see these things happen. And, and they feel that too. It's there's a, there's a real, t- real toll to, you know, knowing that your, you know, your touch of the button, not just, didn't just eliminate a bad guy, but there were innocents involved too. And they, and they, and, and there's some, um, you know, some psychological stress that comes with that. And the idea that this is an American abroad, even though he is connected to terrorism and these acts, there's Without no any, jury, there's no trial. Yeah. There's no, there's no process. There's all the kind of constitutional rights that Americans are supposed to enjoy. He didn't get any of those. And um, th- there was a, a really interesting you know, discussion and, and, and calculation made at the time that this guy was so dangerous that, that the, uh, you know, they, they were able to get the legal authorities that made them feel like they were, they were allowed to do what they did. But, you know, there was typically you'd expect outrage over the fact that this, this, this American citizen got none of the rights that were accorded to U.S. citizens. He was essentially targeted, you know, judge, jury, executioner, you know, took him out thousands of miles away from his home. And the bombing aspect is even more crazy because if we had countries bombing, even if it was just foreign nationals and they weren't attacking civilians in our country, we would be at war within 30 minutes. Oh, yeah, no question. And yet we go and we bomb these foreign countries and it's just, well, they're a world away. They can't get here. Yeah, as a matter of fact, there's something I've been thinking about lately and and, um, and some colleagues too, about how countries are feeling emboldened to go after their enemies in other countries where they don't, you know, outside their their homeland. It's, it's everything from surveillance to, um, you know, disinformation, targeting campaigns to assassinations. And, and we can't, we don't really have any grounds to complain because we do that stuff as well. And if we feel somebody who we feel is a threat, um, it, it almost doesn't matter where they are. I mean, sometimes it's, it's helpful if they're in a place that's considered ungoverned space, like, uh, you know, Pakistani border region in, in the Northwest as opposed to, you know, you know, Britain, but it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a line that we've crossed a lot. So it's very hard for us to go to other countries and say, oh, you shouldn't do that. Just, uh, just let us do it. Yeah. How can we be the arbiters of morality in that case? Yeah. That's that's a big dose of hypocrisy there. I think to say the least. And Russia has been a primary case that you can point to where they do target their nationals abroad, even in Western countries. And yet as bad as that is, you almost have to give them credit in some way because they're not dropping bombs. They're just attacking that individual. Yeah. Using uh, highly lethal, you know, you know, nerve gases in one instance in, in Britain. Yeah. Not great. Yeah. Not, not great. Um, ends up, did end up killing another a civilian who just happened to pick up the vial out of a trash dumpster some, some days later. 
but uh, they they were intending to be, you know, very narrow in their targeting and, and just go after one guy and this and his and his daughter, as it turns out in this case. This is for for viewers that don't know this. This was a case of a is a Russian military defector who, uh, you know, years ago was uh, was um, allowed to essentially a prisoner swap. He was allowed to go to England uh, in exchange for some some Russian prisoners. And um, this guy was it continued to be a thorn in Putin's eyes. Putin really had a personal grudge against this guy, and so two Russian, um, I think they were GR, GRU, so the military intelligence wing, ends up end up going to to Salisbury, England, with a vial of Novichok, which is a extremely lethal nerve agent that was developed by the Soviets at the end of the Cold War, and um, and essentially tried to assassinate him and his daughter using this this chemical, and they. They target. They got both of them. They managed to, to get both of them very, very sick. But because Salisbury, England, also happens to be the home to to the to Britain's biggest chemical weapons uh, defense base, they were able to f- quickly figure out what the what the chemical was, and then to find a you know a, an antidote. So they both survived. But that's the kind of thing that Russia uh, has historically done. They did during during Soviet times, and and continue to do it with. Um, you know, shamelessly, and they just uh, you know deny it. So it wasn't us. You know, it was false flag operation, but it's so clearly it was them because we have photos of the guys who did it. We have very unique uh, poison that was used that only the Soviets were known to have. So, so yeah, they're they're uh, they can claim not to be involved, but they certainly are. Luckily, they were there when that happened, and not in some foreign countryside. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. This idea that these countries are feeling more emboldened to enact these attacks, is that because of some destabilization that we're experiencing in the world more globally that they feel emboldened to do that? Or is that just a track because people are moving around more now? Yeah. The the countries that seem to be engaging in it are the sort of the autocratic states, the ones that you know no rule of law exists per se within their country uh, to begin with. But I do, I do feel there's a sense of, you know, of people being emboldened. And it is partly because that seems to be the, the way the world works now. And it just look at the superpower and what we do. Um, and again, you can argue that the, the, uh, what, what we do in trying to, to eliminate terrorists in other countries is, is the best interest of our own national security. But it, is, it certainly sort of challenges norms, traditions, and, and international law. So, but, but the fact that we do it, it really makes it hard for countries to say, other countries who want to do it, to say that they, they shouldn't, because there's, there's a big example of what we've done. This cyclical nature of violence, where you have been on the ground for so long and been covering this, do you feel like the heightened tension we're experiencing now is just part of that? Or is this an extreme you haven't seen before? What is your feeling on it? Hmm. You know, I, that's a really good question, and I, I try to back up a little bit and and think about, you know, you know, it, everything seems worse in the moment that you're living and and you're looking at stuff on the news and you're thinking, gosh, things are really horrible right now. They've been bad in the past, and we've gotten through really bad times. And I, I'm thinking about early '70s when uh, there was this earlier wave of of international terrorism hijacking. There was a period where I was just reading there was a hijacking on average, every six days. In the beginning, it was just mostly peaceful. Some, somebody would take over a plane and demand ransom or demand 
the plane be taken to Cuba or something like that. So there was, it wasn't violent, but then it became more and more violent. The planes getting blown up and Lockerbie, which was the big, uh, big one. Many of our, our viewers will remember where a, a Pan Am jet was, was brought down by a bomb over Scotland. And, and so there have been some really horrific times. It, um, I feel that at least since the end of the cold war, we're at a moment now where, so the, the, the peril has, has, is, is, quantitatively greater and and it's partly because that old sort of security order you know they you know people following the you know the rules uh in the sense they did after after the end of the cold war particularly that's gone it, it feels like there's you know it's there we're entering a, a period where russia is militarily and strategically allied with with Iran and North Korea to, to a degree they had not been before. I mean, they're, they're real partners now, just not just a client state helping out a small, poor country, but they're, they're real partners. They help each other uh, strategically and with weapon systems. And, and, and because of that, Iran and North Korea appear much more emboldened to, to, to do, you know, take action in their region and sometimes against U.S. interest. So it just feels like there's a lot of stuff coming at us uh, all at once right now. And at a moment when our own sort of political system is in absolute chaos, I mean, I've, that's one thing I've, I've never recalled as seeing things as, you know, polarized as it is right now, where people really don't talk to each other, don't listen to each other, don't listen to the same information. And, you know, people talking about the civil war and, and crazy talk like that. It, 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 as collectively, it just feels much more unsettling and, um, and just stressful. And I, I just feel that myself and my own family and friends, but just, just with the security people I talk to, there's a sense of, I wouldn't necessarily say gloominess, but it's just, wow, we're really in some pretty deep crap right now. And, and um, we're not sure a good way out of it. Well, as we're talking right now, it's the 26th and you have a showdown going on between Texas and the federal government. Yeah. I mean, that alone shows you the turmoil, not only abroad, but in our own country. Yeah, and and with I think I just saw on uh, the, the Oklahoma governor, I think it was him was was talking about you know military clashes between you know state forces or national guards and 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 federal federal troops and police officers. I mean, I, I don't know, I I can't recall ever hearing that kind of rhetoric or that kind of that kind of talk before. So that's that's pretty scary to be honest. Do you buy into the idea that's being thrown around? I don't know if it's just in fringe groups online that these lines that are being drawn between countries are almost symbols to what what happened during the first and second world war where you had these countries start to align tensions start to increase and that was the precursor to what we saw. Yeah. I hope that we have more sense in that. <laughs> I do, you know, I I'm kind of a, a World War One buff for personal reasons. I had a, a great uncle who was killed in the First World War, and, and right around the time of the centennial, I ended up, you know, spending months sort of tracing his path and you know what happened. He was killed nine days before the end of the war, so it was a tragic ending. And we never knew exactly what happened to him until I I ended up kind of piecing together his story through to sort of tracking his unit on on the last days of the war, and and really getting um, relearning that history of how these alignments developed that were, you know, it seems sometimes arbitrary or just, you know, alliances of convenience. But then once shit went down in the Balkans and there was a, you know, 
Archduke was killed by the assassin, and then all those dominoes started to fall. And the next thing you know, we're in this unbelievable world war. And it was one of the, the most destructive thing that ever happened in the history of the planet up to that time. And just a whole generation of French and German and Russian and, and British, smaller numbers of Americans just wiped out. And I, I don't see the dominoes stacked up quite the same way now. And But you do get a sense that there is a new Cold War that we're, that we're witnessing where the European countries, even the ones that were traditionally neutral, like, like uh, Finland and Sweden, clearly taking a stand with NATO and the West, and Russia now with its own alignment with China in and out, depending on what it sees as its advantage, and in the two sides very much wanting the wanting to see the other side, you know, put down, if not you know, not necessarily destroyed, but just you know reduced as a threat. And so we are in this this period again where there are, are stark uh, realignments and and real minefields, real you know, mines that people could step on, and, and you could see things go bad very quickly. Hopefully not to the degree. I feel like in a weird way, nuclear weapons is has made it less likely there's going to be th that kind of full-scale conflict again because people know that it, it's sort of the cost of a, of a true, you know, total war would just be destructive for entire countries. So, God bless us. I hope we don't go that far, but we are definitely in a, in a much more dangerous moment, I think. For me, it feels like China is almost the wild card in all of this. And you hear the rhetoric around Taiwan. And you have to put yourself in their position and think, man, is there a better time if you really <laughs> wanted to reclaim Taiwan than yeah. during all of this global turmoil? Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you're right, China being the kind of the wild card. On one hand, they're, they need us. And, and so they, you don't, I mean, we're much more valuable to them as, as a trading partner than Russia could ever be. So it makes sense for them not to completely break with the West and, and, and on the contrary, you know, find ways to to uh, you know to get along with us at least economically, but they do have their own interest, and their leadership now is 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 I don't know. I I've just I look at Xi, and he's 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 a he's a very different kind of, of of Chinese leader. He's he's much more of a throwback to the older days, where he's much more militaristic, much more nationalistic. Um, surrounds himself with with yes men. Uh, which which creates its own dangers and, and problems and and yeah you can see them looking at Taiwan and and kind of putting out feelers and wondering how easy this would be for us and and you see the Americans very quietly trying to kind of prepare for that potentiality without you know knowing full well that we don't want to get involved in a full blown war with China but we do want to discourage them from trying to to take Taiwan but that yeah that while we're all concentrating on Ukraine and Gaza that's it's a very dangerous. Uh, situation there, and it's you know, I, I know there are guys that I talked in my world that are literally staying up at night thinking about this problem, and and how likely is it that the Chinese may really do something, or the North Koreans who seem to be just completely off their their nut right now, and just are you know, just beyond saber rattling. They're 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 making all kinds of uh, noises about attacking South Korea, and and it just it, it just much more destabilizing behavior than we've seen even from them. And that's saying a lot because they're pretty wacky plays. When you're talking to your contacts in the government, do they believe that we would defend Taiwan? Is there a sense that maybe given the circumstance, we wouldn't if it turned cataclysmic? 
Yeah. My sense, and I, I can't say that I know this with certainty, but my sense is that we would do all we could to help the Taiwanese defend themselves, kind of like we did with Ukraine, to make it so cost prohibitive for the Chinese to try to take that step that, that they, they just wouldn't take the chance. Um, and maybe leave the Chinese with some uncertainty about what the Americans would do, just let them puzzle over it, never have complete certainty that we would or wouldn't in intervene. I, I know, though, that um, the prospect of a, of a full-blown war with the, with the Chinese is, is just not something that anybody is seriously entertaining in our government. It's just, it would be a catastrophe, without doubt. And if, and if anything, the, the Chinese as an adversary, they just keep getting more and more strong. Their, um, their nuclear deterrent, we see them, you know, building nuclear missile silos like crazy all across the West. Their military capabilities, particularly Navy, submarines, um, aircraft carriers, they're, they're, they're already pretty powerful and they're getting stronger all the time. So it's not a war that we'd, we'd like to see happen. And I think any administration would try to do all it could to try to tamp that down while also trying to contain or constrain the, the Chinese from, from, from doing something crazy like uh, invading Taiwan. Wasn't there an instance, I believe it was shown by satellite image, of China building mock U.S. warships out in the desert somewhere and planning yeah. attacks? Yeah, very, very precise, detailed mock-ups. I think it was, a, which aircraft carrier it was, maybe the, the Gerald Ford. I'm probably wrong about that. But, but yeah, very realistic-looking dummy um, aircraft carriers and using them for target practice. And I think there's, that's partly, maybe just that's just, that's a, it's, it's a military exercise, but the choice of targets is, is clearly meant to rattle us and to make us think that, well, you know, we don't want to, push the Chinese too far on Taiwan or anything else. Um, but yeah, that, that definitely sent a message, as does, um, you know, so this kind of the buzzing of our, our aircraft, menacing of, of ships in international waters, which is happening in the South China Sea all the time. They're, they're being very aggressive in, in ways like that. And um, yeah, so I, I, there's, we, we, as our military and security establishment in the last decade has been shifting more and more to focus on on China and, and Asia. And and I think that focus is still there because despite all the problems we're having with uh, Russia in, 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 in the short term, China remains the, the long-term challenge for us. It's the pacing threat, as the defense people say. Pacing threat, but also our current spread. Is there any talk of that where we are, you know, our funding towards Ukraine is slowly being dialed back, but now we're involved with Israel, is there any fear that we're spreading ourselves too thin that should something arise, we won't be well enough equipped to handle it? I, th I think that's very much a concern with, especially with certain kinds of munitions that we, we're we not on a wood war footing that these days, so we, we can't manufacture some of these artillery rounds, for example, or, you know, Bradley vehicles in, in different you know, tanks and tank armaments, tank shells. It's it, we're we're very much overextended in that area right now because we've given away a lot. Um, we promised a lot more, and our 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 manufacturing capacity is just not there yet. They're trying to bring it up, trying to rely you know on, on other partners, trying to get the Europeans to do more. See what the South Koreans you know kind of you know, artillery shells they have that they can donate to the game. But yeah, I think there's there is a concern that our 
stockpiles are, are getting pretty low. And uh, it's going to take a big investment at a time when we don't seem to have money uh, to go around to, to get us up to, to the level where we need to be, where we could engage on multiple fronts at the same time, which is always the, the goal is to be able to fly, fight a, a two-front war. I feel that would be uh, you know way too big of a stretch right now. And what about the perception. desire of the public? You would have to get them on board and they almost seem completely burnt out with all of this. Ah, uh, for sure. And it was, um, I saw this during the, the Syrian conflict and I've written a book about, uh, about Syria and about the crisis that erupted over the chemical weapons uh, thing, the crossing of the famous red line in 2013. And what the, uh, the administration quickly would discover that there was not just a, a lack of enthusiasm, but absolutely, you know, the public refused to go along in any kind of conflict in the Middle East. They didn't want airstrikes. They didn't want, you know, certainly didn't want troops committed to the region. They just didn't want to have any part of a military campaign in, in the Middle East. And I think that's still true. And it's not just the Middle East, but anywhere. I think people were exhausted after Iraq and Afghanistan and just want to kind of bring it home and, and just reflect on our own problems for a while. And we may not have the, our, the luxury to be able to do that, but that's certainly the mood of the public right now. I'm definitely afraid of a head-on conflict, but I'm almost more so afraid of some inadvertent attack, like cyber warfare crippling the power grid or crippling our infrastructure. Yeah. Do you think that's on the table with all of this? I do. I do worry about that. And, and you can see that. In fact, that was one of the immediate concerns right after the Ukraine conflict started and it Russia quickly ran into a wall with trying to sort of quickly capture Kiev and they thought this was going to be an easy campaign. And they, they failed at that. It was partly because of U.S. intelligence and some really good um, U.S. support uh, to the Ukrainians very quickly that helped them kind of uh, blunt that, that assault. And I was really worried at the time that, um, that it would be a moment when the Russians would un unleash some of that cyber capability that we know they have. They can, they can do a lot of damage, um, it, it, certainly to our commercial sector, maybe to our defense sector as well, that seems to be a bit more hardened. But it is capability that they have. The Iranians have gotten very good at it as well, though, and other countries' adversaries. The North Koreans are you know, world-class experts at, at hacking and, and, and cybercrime, you know, you know, getting into bank accounts and essentially, you know, helping themselves to people's deposits. It, all these countries are becoming more and more capable. So that's, that is a weapon in the, in the arsenals of, of many of our adversaries. And if things get to a point uh, where they feel to their advantage in using them, I think they will. We can retaliate, certainly. And I, I know just from my conversations that our own capability is, is extraordinary in, in terms of being able to fight back on those fronts. The other thing that, that worries me, and this is a, something we talked about earlier, is our vulnerability to, to drones. Um, you know, in the in the in Washington, the U.S. Capitol, where I, where I am, you know, we keep getting assured that there's pretty good defense systems in place, and that uh, our people feel like they've got really good uh, kind of invisible shields over over our, our major sites, and 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 we're, we're fairly safe from a from a drone attack. I don't necessarily believe that's true because you can you can launch a, a drone from the back of a van, and and it would fly at low altitudes and you know, zip over a fence and, and hit something and, and may not be devastating as destruction, but just the symbolism of, you know, a major U.S. facility, you know, uh, you know, being hit by a drone. Um, it's a new kind of terror warfare that, that 
that we're, people I talk to are fully expecting is going to happen at some point because it's it's getting easier and easier to do. The kinds of things you can do from a drone, are, you know, are just it just keeps expanding. It's everything from traditional bombs to uh, you know you, you put chemicals or biological weapons. There's a lot you could potentially do with drones, and it's so easy that it's almost baffling that nobody's done it yet. So I do worry that that's another major vulnerability for us. I've been thinking about that a lot because of those videos coming out of Ukraine. What is to stop some terrorist element from, if they have an asset here or a sleeper cell here, just buying some $300 civilian drone that people are flying around for photography or videography and flying it into a building and releasing some chemical agent or a bomb? I mean, you could fly, those things can go for a couple miles now, range-wise. Yeah. You could be sitting yeah, for sure. quite a few miles away, do this, and how long would it take us to find that individual? We definitely wouldn't be able to stop it in time. Yeah. And with, with precision control, and it wouldn't necessarily have to be a, a, you know, a foreign actor or a, you know, a traditional terrorist group like an ISIS or an Al-Qaeda, because we have plenty of extremists over here who have their own agendas and, and may feel motivated to do that just for their own causes. And that's kind of part of the increased peril we find ourselves in is, is the, the, the greatest enemy may be internal. We just don't know. Yeah, that's a scary thought, right? Why are we not seeing more terrorist attacks? I believe it was, in, maybe it was the second term of Obama. You had all of these attacks occurring throughout Europe. And then it seems like they kind of subsided. Yeah. Prior to COVID. It was striking to us because it did feel like that there was the, the caliphate itself, the ISIS caliphate started to collapse from 2017 to roughly 2019 when the last little pockets were destroyed. It, the, the loss of physical space really took a lot out of ISIS's capability. There was a concern that they would continue to inspire or maybe even order lone wolf attacks and we continue to see those i mean just even since the gaza uh, um, uh gaza war there's been a couple of of terrorist attacks in europe that people took inspiration from from hamas and, and wanted to sort of you know blow up something or shoot somebody so that always is a danger but the the um so the sustained tax attacks we saw in the late 20 teens just stopped and I think there's <laughs> one thing I, one of the less pleasant things I do as a part of my job is I spend a lot of time monitoring um, sort of traffic from these, these terrorist groups, particularly ISIS, but Al Qaeda has its own official organs. They have magazines, they've got, you know, you know, telegram sites and things like that. And they keep pleading for people to do more. It's, uh, you know, especially since, since uh, October 7, they keep, saying to their followers, you know, whether you like Hamas or not, and a lot of us don't, this is a moment for us, uh, you know, some of us to, to kind of be together and take action. And so wherever you are, you should do something. So they're, they're you know, rooting for this. And yet it's, um, I don't know if it's because our security's gotten better or, people, or, you know, what it is exactly, but it hasn't really happened. And of course, we're saying this today on, on January 26th, and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we've been pretty lucky, I think, is that it's been as controlled and contained as it is. I do think that regardless of how the, the Gaza cam, you know, Gaza crisis winds down, 
that it will be a source of instability and a, and a motivator for people who want to commit acts of terrorism for the foreseeable future. And we could be seeing consequences of that crisis in our own country or in Western countries, I'd say for, for years to come, because there are a lot of people who are white hot angry about events in the region and, and want to do something. And so it's just a matter of you know, how motivated, what opportunities you have, and, and how destructive you could be. Do you anticipate there being a pivot in their trade craft? I mean, for the longest time, you had suicide bombers being the element that was best. It was yeah. fast. It was easy. They could build these bombs. All they had to do was find a young radical that was they could talk into doing it. Do you anticipate yeah. them in the technological age pivoting to maybe cyber or more biological elements? Would they have the capability to do that? Yeah. So on that, I do feel that, that these, they're, they're sort of what's in fashion right now. You're right. First, it was suicide bombers. There was a period when we saw vehicles being used as kind of terror weapons. That was a big one. And, you know, yeah. So driving a, a truck into a crowded sidewalk or, or at some festival and, and trying to kill people that way. In, in this country, there's always the opportunity to, you can do a, an incredible amount of damage just with firearms if you have, you know, high capacity magazines and you know, you know, a, you know, a bump stock or something that, that makes your, your weapon fully automatic. We just saw with the, the, the Las Vegas attack, you know, a few years ago, just what, 60 people killed some ridiculous uh, figure. So that is a, that's potentially available to someone who wants to do that kind of damage. I think about drones a lot. The, the folks I talk to who, who study who kind of, I guess these are the people who do the, the theorizing and, and kind of try to anticipate what's next. They've said that we've been lucky with chemical weapons and, and biological weapons because they're up to now have been not all that difficult, but just more, more difficult than the other things you can easily do. It's much easier to build up an explosive device than it is to, to create a, a, a weapon of mass destruction that could do more than just kind of scare people and, and you know, make a nuisance. Some of the chemical weapons we've seen that have been used have been pretty crude. ISIS got into the game actually fairly late. Uh, before the caliphate uh, collapsed, trying to kind of cobble together mustard gas and, and like very crude chemical weapons, and they succeeded. But they ultimately discovered that we can do a lot more damage just with a with a truck bomb. So why bother to do that? The thing is though that, particularly with with biology, the, the things you can do in a, a fairly simple lab, um, you know, like a high school lab or certainly a college lab, genetic manipulation, you know, isolation of 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 biological agents that are they're extremely virulent and then releasing them somehow there are many things that people may see as more plausible or, or more likely as the technology gets easier and and it's probably inevitable that something like that will be attempted at some point and we just have to hope we're prepared for it in some way before we got on here i was actually reading one of your articles about i think it's fire lab that China subsidiary where they're collecting DNA data from a wide number of countries. Is that, what do you think their intentions are with that? Yeah. And, and just to give uh, viewers a sense of what that was about, we, uh, well, the people that, you know, that we interviewed for the article was struck by China's global effort to collect, you know, DNA information and just create massive catalogs of, of human DNA. And there are all kinds of potentially legitimate reasons you can do that. You can 
um, you, you use, you know, combine, you know, this, this, these, these databases of, of DNA information with information about diseases or uh, hereditary diseases and try to figure out ways to combat some of the biggest, uh, you know, disease threats to the human race. So that's, that's a good thing. But you can also use the same tools to, to target people because of their genetics. Uh, that you can use use DNA to identify, you know, that you're from a certain ethnic group, or, um, or you have a, a susceptibility to certain kinds of viruses more than other parts of the population, and so you can potentially create a weapon, a biological weapon that would be fairly selective um, and would kind of go after your, your your enemies, but but preserve the people that you want to live. That's a little bit on the. It sounds like science fiction. A lot of people think it's probably not likely to happen for a few years, but but the Chinese in their in their literature, particularly military um, strategists over there, talk about this: the potential for a, a biological weapon that would be selective, that would be based on genetics. The Russians have talked about it too. It's something that's a little bit over the horizon, but if that happens, you know the consequences are just you can. It's hard to put your head around. We lost how many million people in COVID, which turned out to be not that virulent after all. And if you have something that that kills 10, 15% of people that it infects, you know, you're talking about it just, you know, just magnitudes of, of, uh, of, of difference in terms of the lethality. And to be able to accurately target, I mean, who needs a nuclear bomb if you can just drop a biological agent that targets a specific person or group of people, and then there's no damage to any of the infrastructure, there's no damage right. anywhere except to those individuals. Yeah, the, the cities and the trains continue to run. You just you've just killed a lot of your enemies, and so that it's it's chilling to read some of the Chinese literature on this, and and some of it perhaps is speculative. Maybe they're just kind of thinking out loud, but they talk about things like that. That if if you can master this this skill, if you can create weapons like this, you could do more damage than a nuclear weapon, and you could do very little destruction. So it's in that sense, it's an ideal weapon if you can make it. How do you keep yourself sane doing this kind of work and <laughs> for so long? I mean, are you just it's, in a constant state of anxiety or? There's, there's some of that, but there's also just kind of, I guess the, the pace that we find ourselves going at, you know, this, this is such a busy time with Ukraine and, and Gaza and, and then, you know, book writing and, and all the things I'm involved in that, you, you you don't have a lot of time to really dwell on it. And in my case, and and also I just as a it's almost a, a defensive mechanism. You, you learn to put those things aside and and go watch a movie or, or or you know play tennis or do something that's completely just just you know mindless and just just kind of exert yourself and, and have some fun. Because otherwise, yeah, you can you can really drive yourself insane if you think about it too much. But that's I think that's where we all are as a, as a society right now because we hear so much bad news in our media and in our on our social platforms that it's it's a little bit it's it's sort of damaging to the psyche and you do have to find ways to escape and to kind of give yourself the space to have some mental health and and not dwell on this too much. It'll make you make you nuts. Yeah, it's almost a double-edged sword in terms of the information overload that we're getting because it's so toxic that there's the desire to unplug, which was healthy, but you also don't want to get complacent because that's when things go even more sideways. So yeah, you have to figure out true. which which line to walk through that. I had the uh, 
you know, some some good friends who work in the, the security community and and I watched them after 9-11. And these are guys who are FBI or they're intelligence people. And they're kind of the same place of life as me. Like, you, you know, living in a suburb with a, you know, wife and two kids and trying to have kind of normal life. And, and you could see the anxiety play on on them because sometimes they would as we found out later, knew things that, that we had no idea how bad things were or how, what they were worried about at the time. And they were worried about chemical and biological attacks. And they were worried about another wave from Al-Qaeda that fortunately never materialized. But they, they lived and breathed this every day and were always kind of going to bed with the worry that, did I not see this? Did I miss a clue? Did we disregard a communications intercept that was important? And it was... It, it took a physical toll on some of these people, and I feel like that in some ways we're back in that that's that situation where we're all kind of seeing a lot, worrying about a lot, and and you really do have to find ways to to kind of preserve your mental health and and just not let it completely wear you down. Yeah, we're in a crazy time to say the least. I came Ooh. across you. I read Black Flags, which was a great book. You don't need me to tell you that Pulitzer Prize winning. As someone who was not aware of ISIS, definitely not to that extent. I could hit you with the CNN highlights, but I didn't have any fundamental background in it. And to read that book in this current climate was an experience. I mean, you're seeing a lot of these same dynamics at play. You're having Palestinians be involved, the Jordanians be involved. You're really hearing this story of how these groups in Sarkawi came to prominence and I just constantly found myself kind of relating that to where we are today and the mistakes made, the lessons learned, maybe the lessons not learned well enough. And here we are in 2024. Yeah. What I like about that book is, um, is that the fact that, yeah, it, it comes down sometimes to characters and personalities and the people that, that to drive these movements that become so radical and so dangerous. And the story of Black Flags, we focus on one man, at least for the first half of the book, who ends up being kind of the godfather of, of ISIS as we know it now, and getting inside the head of, of a really twisted individual who had his own demons and traumas, you know, in his past that shaped him, but ends up becoming this, you know, a, a monster. And and you can you can see how that happened, and you can just imagine that same trajectory taking place with some young man whose name we don't know right now, but who's part of Hamas or he's in ISIS K in Afghanistan, or um, he's a Hezbollah member in, in in northern or southern Lebanon, and he just lost his family or something like that. And you, you do worry about the, the sort of the, the next Zarqawi, the next person who's going to bring all those. Um, events together and kind of shape them in, in a way that will become a threat to, to the larger community and perhaps to the world in the way that ISIS became. Yeah, so I do think it has relevance. Yeah. Incredibly human theme and a theme of war, which is where we are currently. Yeah. The consequences that we don't anticipate and how they always come back to surprise us. Thanks well, for we, mentioning the book. Yeah. It was a pleasure to read. I was glad that I found it and came across you and we got the chance to do this. I know you got to get out of here. Um, thank you again for coming on and talking. I really enjoyed this. I kind of freaked well, me out I a little this bit. Too. I must say that that you've uh, you're, you're incredibly well read yourself, and you and you 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 ask terrific questions. You ask the right questions, and um, I hope you have. I hope your your listeners and, and viewers appreciate that because 
uh, you, you're hitting all the right themes that we need to be thinking about right now. So thank you for bringing me into the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Do you want to plug where people can find you, where they can find your work for the Washington Post, your sure. books? So yeah, my day job is, is at the Washington Post. And so you can, I have an unusual name, it's Joby, J-O-B-Y, Warwick. And so it's, um, I'm the only one in the world as far as I know. And you can find me on Twitter as Joby Warwick. I usually just don't post a lot, but I just post when I have something new. Uh, I will have some some book news, I hope, in the coming weeks of working on a new project that uh, probably won't come out till 2025, but i um, very excited about it. So I'll, I'll be posting about it uh, as the time comes. Okay, we'll be on the lookout for that. All right, my friend.